0: are right in the face of COVID. It's nothing that I've ever seen in my 15 years as a nurse.
1: Very strange. Uh, It's really difficult for patients.
0: You have the mask on. They can't understand what you're saying half the time because they can't read your lips. I'm doing a lot of hand-holding, reassuring, drying tears. I've prayed. (sighs) Those are the tough ones and it's exhausting. I mean, being in the ICU, the vents are constantly alarming. Patients are constantly decreasing their oxygen.
1: I don't have a magic button or a magic wand that creates more critical care doctors, critical care nurses, respiratory therapists.
0: I'm worried that we're gonna see more and more of this as the winter goes on.
1: As the country races to vaccinate millions of healthcare workers and nursing home residents, more than 1,400 Wisconsinites are still hospitalized with COVID-19. Has the worst of the second wave passed or will this winter bring a surge like we've not seen before? From the Fox 6 Studios, this is Open Record. I'm Brian Polson here with my colleague, Amanda St. Hilaire. Hi, Amanda.
0: Hi, Brian. We are recording this episode on Tuesday, December 15th. Healthcare workers across the state are starting to get the first injections of the Pfizer vaccine, but that process could take weeks. In the meantime, there are still nearly four times as many COVID-19 patients in the hospitals as there were at the worst of the first wave in the spring. So that brings us to something we haven't really talked about on Open Record for a while. Where are we in this pandemic? And how far are we from life returning to something we might recognize as normal? And as for that second question, Brian, I think um, it depends on what your definition of normal is, right? Normal is. So Jenna Sachs was on our, our podcast a few weeks ago. And she had doctors telling her that normal, normal, everything being exactly the way it was before the pandemic might not happen till 2023, which seems a a long ways away. But certainly before then, we could start to see bigger portions of of daily life resume as more people get vaccinated.
1: Well, and it's hard to even know what normal would be anymore. What's the definition of that? I think what certainly I know what I mean when I think of that and I think what most people mean is life getting back to the kind of thing where we can go to group gatherings, where we can see family at Thanksgiving and Christmas and not worry about it, where we can go to live music events and sporting events and we can visit with friends and we can be in public in a way that life has always been known to be. Um, And that's still a ways off, even though a vaccine is here. This is like the beginning of the end. We've heard that uh, stated before. This is the beginning of the end, but it's not the end because we're just seeing the beginnings of the vaccine administration to healthcare workers, soon to nursing home residents and and then to, to everybody else. And even then, we still don't really know what this is going to mean. One of the things that really stood out to me in the FDA hearings over the Pfizer vaccine was the discussion of whether or not the vaccine will actually prevent or reduce transmission of the virus. Because at first, I think there might be an assumption that you get a vaccine, it means people won't catch COVID-19 or won't catch SARS-CoV-2, the virus that causes the disease. And that's not necessarily true. The virus may still well transmit from person to person, just like it did before, or nearly as much as it did before. It's just that it won't lead to severe disease or death in those who've been vaccinated. So you might knock down the results, the impact, but you may not knock down the spread of the virus itself, which still leaves many people vulnerable. And that means that I, I guess we're looking at quite a long time before we can get rid of these masks and and, and start to really uh, gather in the ways that we're used to
0: well and that's why epidemiologists say it's still important even with people getting vaccinated that we pay attention to the number of cases because if we're having a really big surge in COVID 19 cases while we're vaccinating people and then people are still spreading the virus that can be a, a big problem for our society in terms of people getting sick people dying or people surviving, but suffering from long-term effects. On the other hand, I spoke with um, a a few medical experts over at Aurora, and one of them was telling me that from a research standpoint, if the COVID-19, the number of COVID-19 cases is really high while the vaccine is being administered, that helps us understand how effective the vaccine is, because you can then see, is there later a big drop-off in cases? So there are a lot of different reasons. We're still paying attention to the spread of the virus in Wisconsin. And and those are just a few of them.
1: Well, and you know, we talked at the top of this about, you know, where are we in this pandemic? And if you just look at the sort of the graphs we've been following since March, looking at how many cases there are, how many people are hospitalized, how many deaths there are. Um, those are numbers we've been tracking. And you, you, you know, we've heard the term from way back in March. You remember when we all talked about the the need to flatten the curve. The idea was instead of seeing a big giant peak that would overwhelm hospitals and, and the public health system, that we would uh, maybe flatten that curve. It wouldn't mean that the, the vi- virus wouldn't still spread and a lot of people wouldn't still get it, but at least it wouldn't overwhelm the the healthcare system and in in the spring that seemed to be accomplished pretty well that the peaks in the spring uh were never reached levels that overwhelmed the healthcare system the ad hoc hospitals set up like at state fair park and things like that weren't even used um so we never reached the point in the spring but and the summer was pretty good here in Wisconsin we all know by now that the fall has been awful and starting in September continuing into October and and now into November and December the, the number of cases uh, skyrocketed um, and we, you know, the hospital started to become overwhelmed and we were hearing from hospital systems saying we don't have any more room to create new COVID wings. So, you know, this is at a breaking point. The good news in that is if you look at those same charts today, there has been at least a decrease since mid-November. Um there was some real fear when Thanksgiving came that everybody was going to gather, intermix and travel and it was going to take an already really bad situation and send it beyond the line of no return. It didn't happen. In fact, the opposite happened. We haven't seen that post-Thanksgiving surge. It's the, the numbers have dropped off. The number of people hospitalized peaked at 2277 on November 16th here in Wisconsin, it has since dropped to the about the mid 1400s. So uh, about an 800 person or patient drop. Um, that's significant. That's substantial. That's giving some room to the hospitals to sort of gather themselves. But it's not it, 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 it's not over. I mean, the, the winter is still ahead and there is still concern that that number is going to just climb right back up. So it's good news that the peak seems to have been reached here in the fall, but that doesn't mean there's only one peak. There could be something much worse still ahead, and I think that's what, certainly that's what the the healthcare community is still bracing for as they start to get uh, people vaccinated.
0: Yeah, so last time I checked, the number of COVID-19 hospitalizations was down 35 percent from that mid-November peak you described, Brian, but I know hospitals are also struggling with staffing shortage because we have healthcare workers who have to quarantine at home if they're showing COVID-19 sy- symptoms after being exposed. Um, we have healthcare workers who themselves are are getting very sick. So at the same time as hospitalizations are going down, we do have hospitals dealing with staffing shortages and that's why there's so much hope surrounding this move to, to vaccinate the state's healthcare workers. And we have about 450,000 of those and like we talked about at the beginning of this episode, that's going to take several weeks. Well, and, and, and I
1: talked to some of those some of those healthcare workers who are not just working somewhere in the healthcare system, but people who are on the front lines dealing with COVID patients, severely ill COVID patients. Um, we, we actually uh, got access to a COVID nineteen intensive care unit at UW Health in Madison. And some of the staff I talked to there, what you just said, Amanda, about staffing shortages, that's really on their mind because there are only so many critical care doctors and nurses and respiratory therapists to go around. And they're working long hours. And they're not just hours, they're stressful hours. They are taking care of people who are on ventilators and who. Uh, Are in many cases nearing what may be the end of their life. And they're dealing with family members who can't visit. So they have to set up Zoom calls and they have to uh, essentially be that patient's only human contact, though it's through a mask and PPE and everything else. So there's a lot of stress and weight on what they're doing. And now that they're getting vaccinated, you would think, well, that's going to make things better. But in the short term, it actually makes them worse because The vaccine, we know, comes with side effects. And so if someone experiences headache, muscle aches, or a slight fever after taking the vaccine, you can't assume it's a side effect. It may well be a symptom of COVID-19. Therefore, you have to keep those people home. And when you're already severely short-staffed in the ICU... And you go and vaccinate a bunch of people and now you've got even more people out, it only furthers the stress on the system. So this is a critical time right now for doctors and nurses and and, and healthcare workers who are dealing with the sickest of COVID-19 patients. There's light at the end of the tunnel, but that light is still a long way off.
0: Logistically, Brian, what was the process of getting into a a COVID-19 ICU? Because with all the COVID-19 safety precautions, I'd imagine that wasn't an easy task.
1: Well, I want to give credit to UW Health for being very accessible and transparent throughout the pandemic because they they have had uh, they've been very accessible to the media in making doctors and physicians available to help educate the public on here's what's going on with vaccines. Here's what's going on with testing. Here's what's going on with uh, the patients in our hospitals. And, And so. They've really helped with PPE early on. We did interviews with um, with the Dr. Jeffrey Potoff, who I think has been on the air more than I have on, on Fox <laughs> 6, uh, because he's been accessible and, and willing to talk about what's the status of PPE in the healthcare system and what do we need from the public? Um, in this case, I reached out and said, look, Doctor." I, I saw a quote from Dr. Potoff a couple of weeks ago where he said, Look, and this was in mid-November. This was when things were at their absolute worst and the trajectory was still straight up to the sky. And they were worried. And they said, look, if you could just see what we see, you'd understand how bad this is. And so I I reached out to one of their, uh, you know, public relations, their media team. Uh, I said, that's exactly what I want our viewers to have the chance to do is to see what you see. Is there any way? And we're battling two major problems. One, safety, because obviously there's a reason they don't let even visitors come see family members in the hospital because they're trying to keep COVID-19 out of the hospital and keep people from coming in and, and, and getting sick uh, from the people who are already infected and are in their care. But the second issue is privacy. Healthcare privacy is a major issue in this country. And, you know, you just can't say, here, bring a camera into the hospital and let's 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 aim it at a bunch of people who are on their deathbeds on ventilators, um, and and you know we're trying to keep alive here. You can't do that very easily. So um, I didn't expect that I was going to get a, a a real positive response on that, but I thought, why not ask? Um, and and I reached out and said, you know, what can we work out? And to my surprise, they got right back and said, I think we can carve out an hour for you next week. But here's what we're going to need to do. And they sent over a waiver form that. Uh, photographer Tim Primo and I each had to sign that said we would not show any patient information that was specific to any patient we would not show any names we certainly would not point our camera into uh, an intensive care patient room to show the equipment the person the anything there was no blurring of a face there was just you're not going to show patients but you can see you can get a sense of what it's like for the staff and so I, I my first thought was boy that's a really nice offer. But what's that really going to show? I mean, the patients are the story. Mm -hmm. That's what this is all about. And and I I do think there was there's still some level of of, uh, you know, after having done it, I wish we'd been able to show the patients because it's inevitable when you walk through a a hospital hallway, you know, your your peripheral vision, you're going to see into some of those windows. You're going to see into some of those rooms. And it's it's uh, it's it's tragic. It's sad. um, But Even what we could see in the hallway when I got there, I thought was remarkable because while it looks like a regular hospital hallway, they've taken the equipment that would normally be stored in a patient room and they've moved it into the hallway. All of the IV poles and the diagnostic equipment and things, and they've strung wires out of the rooms in the wing we were in. They actually built specific boxes in the wall to run the wires so they can put the the equipment outside to minimize the number of times staff has to come in and out of the room. Because every time they enter a patient room, they've got to get geared up in full PPE. They double glove. They're wearing the the, the hoods over their heads with the hoses attached that cycle fresh air, clean air constantly into into their headspace. And so every time they come in and out of the room, they've got to do that. They're trying to minimize the number of times they've got to come in and out. So you essentially see a hallway full of equipment that's usually in there with the patients.
0: That had to be powerful to you. Also, as you were speaking to the healthcare workers, getting the, I know the patients are the story, but in this case, the, the healthcare workers and, and what they're experiencing as we're talking about hospitals uh, being at a point where we're worried about whether they're going to hit their max capacities. You know, these are human beings who are on the front lines and they're worried about bringing things home to their families. They're worried about themselves getting sick.
1: One of the people I talked to was a respiratory therapist, Sammy Linscheid, and she is, believe it or not, in her first year uh, as a respiratory therapist. She graduated, got her degree, got her license, and uh, then the pandemic hit. Wow. So this is her introduction to the world of respiratory therapy. Um helping people breathe. (laughs) Well, This is a pandemic where people can't breathe. So she's been thrown right into the fire. And what I thought was really interesting in talking to her, she was very candid um, about her experience. And she said back in in the spring, we were hearing all of the stuff about the hospitals were going to be overrun and it's so bad. And she was going to work and seeing we don't really have that many patients. And so she got the sense like, you know, this isn't as bad as everybody's saying. So in her own private life, she was having trouble really kind of feeling the incentive to stick to all of the mask wearing and social distancing and other things because her experience was it's not that bad. This fall, it's that bad or worse. And she said, you know, now she's seeing that worst case that everybody was talking about back in the spring. That's all hit. And now they're realizing, okay, this was what what everyone was fearing. Um, and so she's working these long hours. She's dealing with people who are, uh, in, in many cases, They're isolated from their families, but may well be about to go on a ventilator. And she's got to be there to coordinate the call with another nurse or other staff member to say this might be the last time you talk to your loved one before they go on a ventilator and they may never come off of it. So it's physically draining, but you could tell it was also very emotionally draining to keep going through these things day after day. Um, So what at one time for her was, uh, I don't get the problem, became... Uh, a very real, okay, this is exhausting, draining, and scary.
0: And what we're seeing too can vary from region to region of the state, right? So we do have some regions of the state that are getting hit harder than others. But even I was to put some numbers to all of this, on the Wisconsin Hospital Association website, they have a COVID-19 dashboard. And what they've been reporting are how many beds are open in intensive care units um, because total. So it, they're not showing um, just how many COVID-19 ICU beds have been taken up, but they want to show you the, the total number that's available because part of the fear is that if we have hospitals filling up because of COVID-19 and a mixture of other things. If you, for example, have a heart attack that has nothing to do with COVID-19, you're still going to have trouble getting the kind of care that you want to get. So last I checked, 16.2% of the state's ICU beds were open, and 17.6% of all beds were open. And so that shows you to to put a number to to some of the emotional aspects we were just talking to when you're a healthcare worker and you're seeing that and you're seeing that number of beds shrink even though you're not at the critical point it that has to mess with your mind when you know what can happen as that that number of beds continues to shrink
1: well and i think that's why the the, the concern with Thanksgiving and Christmas was so important because you know we've seen other holidays uh, come where as soon as the holiday was over there was a big surge and going into Thanksgiving. I mean, we were at this, this peak that the the bed space, there just wasn't more bed space that, you know, I, I'm in, in talking to Dr. Potoff at, at uh, UW health. He said, you know, we've got 11 wings. Now we had to count them on his fingers. Cause he couldn't remember how many there were. So he, he ends up with, we have 11 wings devoted to COVID-19 patients. Now he said, I don't have 11 more wings to make for COVID-19 patients. Um, I, I, I don't know. I have many more at all. So what do we do? And, and every time they expand a wing, for COVID-19 here's the other thing and he made a big point of this every time they expand a wing or they open a new icu for COVID-19 that means they are sacrificing beds that could go to other patients for other needs and there are still a lot of other people who still need to go to the hospital for other things like heart attacks and strokes and cancer treatments and other things and so when it, the wing we were in was a converted uh, icu that was meant for brain surgery patients well there's still people who need brain surgery so where do you put them now? And and he said uh, that in a disaster, it is not necessarily the direct victims of that disaster who are harmed the most, it is sometimes the people who are displaced because of the attention that needs to be placed on the people who are directly affected by the disaster. So if in this case, it's the pandemic, COVID-19, that's the disaster, in a lot of cases, it's the people who aren't even affected by COVID-19 who are being displaced. And it's not that they're not treating them, it's not that they're not helping them, but certainly the, there's so much attention and weight being placed on trying to find room for these people who are dealing with severe COVID-19 illness. Room
0: and staff It puts other people right. And, and staff. even if you Absolutely. have room and, and that's part of the thing too. So if, if you're in the hospital for something else, the, the number of staff isn't just magically growing. So even if there is a bed for you, if, if the people who are taking care of you can't get to you, as quickly as they usually would, I mean, seconds can be the difference between life and death. And I, I don't say this to be melodramatic, but that's that's part of the concern as well. So that's why when we talk about these different numbers and where we are in the pandemic, we, we try to look at the whole thing because it's not just about how many beds. It's not just about how many people are in the hospital. It's not just about staffing. It's all of it combined that can create this you know situation that that we don't want to be in i know you know right around thanksgiving my husband and i originally you know weeks before we had booked a a flight to visit my family in pennsylvania and i'm pregnant i'm in a a group that's considered high risk for covid19 and i have family members who are considered high risk for covid19 and we, uh, we decided to cancel our flight because we were looking at those numbers and, and my husband looked at me and he said, if you get sick, there's I don't know that there's going to be room for you at the hospital. And, and that's why we changed those plans. Now, we haven't seen this huge surge after Thanksgiving and it makes me wonder if people will look at that and go, oh, well, then I can do Christmas as I normally would, Right. And then, what does that situation yield? And we don't have a crystal ball.
1: I think there's going to be a lot of that because I I think there's also a lot of people who were uh, willing to sacrifice Thanksgiving, but Christmas is a bigger deal. Right. And they go, you know what? I, I, I sacrificed Thanksgiving and things turned out okay. But I'm not giving up Christmas. And and so I do think there that's that's still a concern that healthcare providers have. And then immediately after Christmas, what do you have but New Year's Eve? And I've got to imagine this is one New Year's Eve a lot of people are gonna be eager to celebrate because they want twenty twenty to come to an end. <laughs> but the great irony may be depending on how you celebrate the end of what has been an awful year in so many ways, you could actually exacerbate the problem. So those are still concerns that are ahead. I mean, just because the Thanksgiving surge didn't happen doesn't mean there won't be a Christmas surge, a New Year's surge. Um, it, it's definitely a concern that that is out there. But if you want to look for good news in all of this, and sort of we talk about where we are, the the Johns Hopkins, Johns Hopkins uh, Coronavirus Resource Center, tracks a lot of things and one of the things i've been watching over time is they have the the trend lines for each state and they will color code them based on where they are what the what the trend is right now upward downward what's what's the trajectory and there was a period of time here in september october november where wisconsin north dakota and south dakota were bright red and the trajectory was straight up and it was we're the, making the question, national like, news national like why wisconsin why north dakota and south dakota all three of those states now are on a steep downward trajectory. Um, and and uh, in fact, much of the Midwest, Minnesota, Illinois, Michigan, Montana, Idaho, which is we're not really Midwest, more Northwest, but Wyoming, South Dakota, Iowa, all of these places that were trending up earlier this fall are now trending downward. And we're seeing other parts of the country start to see the surge that we had. The Northeast, the East Coast, um, Tennessee is actually the worst right now. One of the worst has one of the worst upward. They look like Wisconsin did in September and October. Um, so to some degree, you know, there's also these regional trends that that shift and take place. And it may well be that Wisconsin has seen a big outbreak that's starting to shrink back. That That's good news for now. But there's always that fear, especially with the holidays still coming, that that could turn right back around. And we know there's a long winter ahead. I mean, anyone who's lived any amount of time in Wisconsin knows we're going to be confined indoors for a long time. So uh, there's still a good possibility the trend will turn right back around. But at least where we are today, things are going in the right direction.
0: And as we keep track of those numbers, we're going to keep bringing you these twice weekly episodes of Open Record as we cover the pandemic, reckless driving, police community relations, and so much more. So if there's a topic you want us to discuss, an issue you think we should investigate, please send us an email. And you can send your emails to fox6investigators at fox.com. Again, that's fox, the number six, investigators at fox.com.
1: And as always, thank you to the people who make this podcast possible. Producer Pete, Dave Machuda, Suzanne Barthel, and Sarah Smith. And please subscribe to Open Record if you haven't done that already. You can find it wherever you get your podcasts. For Amanda St. Hilaire, I'm Brian Polson, and we'll talk to you again on Thursday.